This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Uh, Thanks for coming, everybody. Um, I've got 35 to 40 minutes to explain the basics of Marxism. And and given that the collected works of Marx and his um, close friend and collaborator, Frederick Engels, run to over 100 volumes, uh, that's a pretty tall order. (laughs) So uh, what I'm going to do is to focus on the most famous work that Marx and Engels wrote, the Communist Manifesto, Um, not just because I edited an edition of the manifesto, um, but but because it's uh, it's their own guide to their central political uh, ideas. Um, Now, the manifesto was written almost 175 years ago. Uh, Here's how Marshall Berman um, describes the impact it has had since then. Whenever there's trouble anywhere in the world, the book becomes an item. When things quiet down, the book drops out of sight. When there's trouble again, the people who forgot remember. When fascist-type regimes seize power, it's always on the short list of books to burn. When people dream of resistance, even if they're not communists, even if they distrust communists, it provides music for their dreams. Uh, Last year, uh, The Guardian, the British newspaper, published an article which said that the Communist Manifesto is currently having a moment due to the fact that its ideas have a habit of popping up in times of economic and social crisis. Despite the fact that the manifesto was written in the middle of the 19th century, its core message, I believe, is just as relevant today as when it was first written. The Guardian article points out that huge numbers of young people are turning their backs on capitalism. And that sentiment... um, has been strong since at least the 2008 financial crisis, and it has grown stronger as inequality has increased, as the far right has emerged as a serious threat, and as the climate crisis has become an existential emergency. So the manifesto is about why a revolution to get rid of capitalism is both necessary and possible, and it's about the basic principles of an alternative Uh, to capitalism. So the manifesto is about why a revolution to get rid of capitalism is both necessary and possible, and it's about the basic principles of an alternative to capitalism. Um, That's true even though the word capitalism doesn't appear in the Communist Manifesto anywhere. Uh, Marx hadn't yet coined that term, and in 1848 he refers to the society which was emerging as bourgeois society. Um, Incidentally, I'll sometimes refer to Marx and Engels, sometimes just to Marx. The manifesto itself was written entirely by Marx, but he drew on two earlier drafts written by Engels, and the ideas were developed by the two of them together during the 1840s, so crediting them both 
as authors is reasonable. The manifesto provides an account of um, where capitalism came from and how it works, and an ar argument for the centrality of class for understanding the world and, more importantly, for changing it. It's that last point, I think, that separates what Marx and Engels were writing about and much of what passes for Marxism today, particularly on university campuses. Marx wrote that the philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point is to change it. Unfortunately, most academic Marxists have given up on this goal. They're happy to interpret the world or to interpret what other people have written about the world, but what they say is accessible only to a, a tiny audience and it has no connection to any kind of genuine political struggle. But Marxism is not an intellectual game that only an educated elite can play. In fact, the basic ideas are very clear, very simple, and very relevant for anyone who thinks we need an alternative to capitalism today. Marx's analysis of capitalism is based on a materialist understanding of how societies operate and how history develops. Uh, Engels explained what this meant in his eulogy at Marx's funeral. Uh, Engels said, Marx discovered the law of development of human history. The simple fact, hitherto concealed by an overgrowth of ideology, that mankind must first of all eat, drink, have shelter and clothing before it can pursue politics, science, art, religion, etc. That therefore the production of the immediate material means and consequently the degree of economic development attained by a given people or during a given epoch form the foundation upon which the state institutions, the legal conceptions, art, and even the ideas on religion of the people concerned have been evolved, and in the light of which they must therefore be explained instead of vice versa, as had hitherto been the case. Now this is the basis of what has come to be known as historical materialism. I'm not going to say more about it now, but we can, we can take it up further in discussion if people would like to. Okay, I'm going to start with capitalism. Um, now, when I was a student a very long time ago now, uh, the most common criticism of Marxism was that it was outdated. Marx may have described 19th century capitalism accurately, the argument went, but contemporary capitalism was different. Economic crises were a thing of the past, living standards were rising for everyone, and capital and labor were partners, not enemies. Uh, that was the world of the post-war boom, which late, lasted from the late 1940s to the mid-1970s. But since that time, the U.S. and world economies have experienced a, sh a series of sharp crises. Real wages in the U.S. Uh, today are lower than they were in 1973. Inequality has increased dramatically, and we've experienced over 40 years of a one-sided class war from the top. So today, the world looks more and more like the one that Marx and Engels were describing in 1848, a point that even many opponents of Marxism have had to acknowledge. Uh, according to a New York Times article uh, written before the financial crisis of 2008, more than ever, Americans do not trust business or the people who run it. A majority of the public believes that executives are bent on destroying the environment, cooking the books, and lining their own pockets. Pretty accurate, I would say. Um, in 1998, 
on the manifesto's 150th anniversary, numerous mainstream commentators enthused about how well Marx had described capitalism. An article in The New Yorker said that Marx wrote riveting passages about globalization, inequality, political corruption, monopolization, technical progress, the decline of high culture, and the enervating nature of modern existence. Issues that economists are now confronting anew, sometimes without realizing that they are walking in Marx's footsteps. It's because Marx and Engels lived at a time when modern capitalism was young that they were able to analyze the system in a way that captured its essential features and its core dynamic. Here, for example, is their dazzling description of the incessant change that capitalism brings in its wake. The bourgeoisie cannot exist without constantly revolutionizing the instruments of production and thereby the relations of production and with them the whole relations of society. All that is solid melts into air. All that is holy is profaned. And man is at last compelled to face with sober senses his real conditions of life and his relations with his kind. So the manifesto charts the way that ca in which capitalism has shattered narrow horizons and produced technological marvels. But it also describes capitalism as a system that is increasingly running out of control. Capitalism concentrates wealth and power in the hands of a small minority. It creates huge pools of poverty. It turns life into a daily grind that prevents most people from fulfilling their potential. And it experiences frequent and enormously wasteful economic crises. Uh, we probably all know the figures for growing inequality and concentration of wealth in the, U in the U.S. And, and around the world. In the 1970s, the wealthiest 1% in the U.S. owned about 20% of the nation's total household wealth. Uh, now they own over 35%. The disparities have become even greater since the start of the COVID crisis. Between March 2020 and October of last year, U.S. billionaires grew $2.1 trillion richer. Their collective wealth increased by 70%, from just short of $3 trillion at the start of the COVID crisis um, to over $5 trillion. Globally, the figures are even more astonishing. A few hundred people around the world own more than the combined income of, of over uh, half the planet's population. While a new billionaire was created every 26 hours during the pandemic, over 160 million more people were pushed into poverty. The corporate class is squeezing uh, more surplus value than ever from those who work for them. And even those who regard themselves as middle class are often just a single paycheck away from poverty. Capitalism encourages greed, competition and aggression. It degrades human relations so that they are frequently based, as the manifesto notes, on little more than naked self-interest and callous cash payment. Capitalism's ceaseless drive to expand not only destabilizes social relations, Sooner or later, it also undermines the conditions for economic growth itself. Marx and Engels argue that capitalism is a system in which highly destructive economic crises are unavoidable and which has thus become fundamentally irrational. As they, as they write, modern bourgeois society with its relations of production, of exchange and property 
a society that has con conjured up such gigantic means of production and of exchange is like the sorcerer who is no longer able to control the power of the netherworld whom he has called up by his spells. In a world threatened by pollution, global warming, and the destruction of ecosystems as the result of uncontrolled capitalist growth, this image, I think, uh, uh, the sorcerer who can't control his own spells, is, is an image that has special resonance. Today, the search for profits threatens to destroy everything in its path, including the natural environment. Capitalist society has raised production to the point where everybody could be provided with a decent life, enough to eat, a comfortable place to live, health care, educational and recreational opportunities, and much more. But the conditions of bourgeois society are too narrow to comprise the wealth created by them. Each successive crisis can only be overcome by paving the way for more extensive and more destructive crises. Private ownership and the anarchy of marketplace competition are no longer compatible with large-scale economic production integrated at the social and global levels. The only solution to these devastating problems is the abolition of capitalism itself and its replacement by a system in which the majority of the population democratically controls society's wealth. The manifesto is above all a revolutionary call to action, an explanation not only of what is wrong with society, but how it can be transformed to create an association in which the free development of each is the condition for the free development of all. Central to this strategy for change is its claim that in the modern working class, the proletariat, capitalism has produced its own grave diggers. Marx and Engels argue that capitalism has created a group of people with both the capacity and the interest to fight for the overthrow of the existing system and the emancipation of all humanity. The power of the working class is based on the fact that capitalism socializes the labor process, bringing workers together in large urban centers and in bigger and bigger units of production. At the same time, the pressures of economic life tend to push workers together to fight back against their exploitation. And because of their key economic position, workers have the collective power to bring production to a halt by going on strike. Of course, most workers do not begin with the goal of making a revolution. But as they are forced to engage in the class struggle to protect their own interests, the collisions between individual workmen and individual bourgeois take more and more the character of collisions between two classes. As the American Marxist Hal Draper once put it, Marx's approach starts from the point of view that the reason why the working class, once in motion, shakes the foundations of capitalist society is not basically psychological, but economic. That is, that capitalism cannot, in the long run, solve the economic problem of providing a human life for the masses. This proposition provides the basis for the class approach to Marxism. And without it, you have no class approach and cannot have one. If it is not true, there is no reason not to be a good liberal. Liberals and reformists believe that we can change society by electing the right people to political office. But Marx and Engels argue that the state in capitalist society has a class character. The bourgeoisie has conquered for itself in the modern representative state 
exclusive political sway. The executive of the modern state is but a committee for managing the common affairs of the whole bourgeoisie. If we want to get rid of capitalism, we need a mass movement that is strong enough to defeat the power of the existing ruling class. Elections can play a role in building such a movement, but they should not be the be-all or end-all of political organizing. Elections are useful if they help build stronger movements on the ground. If instead they result in movements being demobilized, they set back the fight for socialism. Now, the working class is not perpetually on the verge of revolution. For long periods of time, many workers may be satisfied with their lot under capitalism, or at least willing to put up with it. But Marx and Engels understood that this state of affairs couldn't last forever. The chaotic, turbulent, unplanned development of capitalist economies eventually throws whole societies into turmoil and turns even the most modest of working class demands into a challenge to the whole system. The process is not a smooth one. The ruling class attempts to weaken the working class by exacerbating national, racial and other differences. But such divisions can be fought and overcome as capitalism continues to intensify the class struggle. I think it's important to add that while Marx sees class as central, that does not mean that he thinks that the fight against racism or, and all other forms of oppression is unimportant or can be sidelined or ignored. In fact, for anyone who wants to build a powerful working class movement, fighting against oppression in all its forms has to be a top priority because without defeating or at least substantially weaken it, weakening racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia and so on, it will be impossible to build the kind of movement that we need. Because of their strategic economic position, workers, whether blue collar or white collar, industrial or service, have the power to uh, and I'm quoting again, become masters of the productive forces of society by abolishing their own previous mode of appropriation and thereby also every other previous mode of appropriation. Now, Marx and Engels uh, may have had an over-optimistic conception about how quickly these processes would work themselves out. But what is true is that since the mid-19th century, capitalism has repeatedly shown that it cannot avoid periodic crises, and that these crises may bring the barbarism of modern warfare in their wake. At the same time, the working class has grown ever larger, increasing its potential power to shut down the economy and to threaten the, ex the very existence of the ruling class. Uh, even in the United States, where unionization rates have been declining for years because of the employer's offensive, a clear majority of the workforce would like to join a union. Time and again over the last 150 years, workers in countries around the world have shown their capacity for mass action and, not infrequently, revolutionary struggle. And there's a rich tradition of working class and socialist struggle in the United States. But the socialist tradition in the U.S. has been marked by deep discontinuities with periods of mass radicalization like the 1930s and the 1960s being followed by decades in which socialist ideas have barely existed. Will there be new upsurges in struggle in the future? Well, according to a major study issued last year, we are currently in a historic period of protest. 
uh, the authors, and here I'm going to quote from a Washington Post article about this study, looked at demonstrations between 2006 and 2020 and found that the number of protest movements around the world had more than tripled in less than 15 years. Every region saw an increase, the study found, with some of the largest protest movements ever recorded, including the farmers' protests that began in 2020 in India, the, the 2019 protests against President Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, and the ongoing Black Lives Matter protests in the U.S. since 2013. Looking closely at more than 900 protest movements or episodes across 101 countries and territories, the authors came to the conclusion that we are living through a period of history like the years around 1848, when the manifesto was, was written, 1917, the year of the Russian Revolution, or 1968, um, the big upsurge in the 60s, when large numbers of people rebelled against the way things were demanding change. According to one of the study's authors, too many leaders in government and business are not listening. The vast majority of protests around the world advance reasonable demands already agreed upon by most governments. People protest for good jobs, a clean planet for future generations, and a meaningful say in the decisions that affect their quality of life. Other than issues with democracy and political representation, the report identifies rising inequality as another broad theme of protests around the world contributing to nearly 53% of the protests studied. Individual issues raised by, raised by protesters included uh, corruption, labor conditions, and reform of public services, follow, um, uh, all followed real democracy as the most widely cited. There was also a significant increase in demands for racial or ethnic justice, such as with the Black Lives Matter protests. But the report also notes that there are a smaller number of protests with right-wing politics focused on denying the rights of others and scapegoating racial or national minorities. An important reminder that in times of crisis, the right can grow as well as the left. At the center of um, the manifesto's vision is the idea of working class self-emancipation. As Engels puts it, our notion from the very beginning was that the emancipation of the working class must be the act of the working class itself. Working class self-activity and self-organization is thus the key both to successful revolution and to the new form of society such a revolution could bring about. The communist argument against socialism today is that the collapse of the Soviet bloc over 30 years ago shows that no alternative to capitalism is possible. But I would argue that the societies that collapsed in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe had little in common with Marx and Engels' conception of socialism. Just as in the West, workers in these countries were exploited by a privileged ruling class, and while internal markets in these countries had largely been abolished, the pressures of military and economic competition on a world scale imposed on them the same dynamic of accumulation and growth familiar in the capitalist West. So the collapse of these regimes is in no way an argument against the possibility of genuine socialism. But unlike the earlier utopian socialists, Marx and Engels don't offer a detailed blueprint for the future. 
They are not interested in drawing up, they say, the best possible plan of the best possible state of society or painting, painting fantastic pictures of future society. Such dreams are unconnected with the material conditions for the emancipation of the proletariat. And it is primarily with analyzing these material conditions that Marx and Engels concern themselves. But the analysis of these conditions does allow them to formulate in general terms the principles on which a socialist society would be based. The first and vital step is to raise the proletariat to the position of ruling class to win the battle of democracy. Democratic working class control of society is both the economic in both the economic and political realms is the defining feature of Marx's conception of socialism. Without real democracy, there can be no socialism. But how is democratic power to be exercised? In their preface to the German edition of the Manifesto of 1872, they point to the example of the Paris Commune of 1871, where the proletariat for the first time held political power for two whole months. Uh, and for them, for them, this is a concrete historical example of what they had in mind. In, in the 1872 preface, Marx and Engels write, one thing especially was proved by the commune, viz. that the working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready-made state machinery and wield it for its own purposes. This means that the working class cannot simply take over the existing state, but must completely refashion it. During its brief existence, the commune instituted a number of important measures. The standing army was abolished and replaced by workers' defense committees. Police, magistrates, and judges were appointed by the community and could be quickly recalled. All elected officials were also uh, revoc revocable at short notice and, were, uh, and, were not, and most were not professional politicians, but workers or working class leaders who were paid only workers' wages. The executive and legislative functions of government were combined, so the commune was not just a talk shop. Instead, it provided a first concrete example of the way in which workers' democracy could be achieved. In the context of workers' democracy, the new society could advance towards its ultimate goals, the elimination of private ownership of the economy and production for the market, and the final abolition of all class divisions. Marx and Engels are clear that such dramatic economic and social changes, unlike the seizure of political power, can only come about by degrees. But through such measures as the nationalization of land, banks, and large-scale industry, combined with heavy taxation on, of the wealthy, the new society could gradually eliminate production based on market competition and replace it with workers' control of production and democratic planning designed to meet people's needs and provide them with the opportunity to develop as free individuals. At the end, of, end point of this process, when class divisions have finally disappeared, the public power, i.e. the state, will lose its political character, ceasing to be a means for one class to impose its will on another, and becoming instead simply a forum for democratically resolving disputed issues. There's one final aspect of Marx's vision that is important. Capitalism, as we have seen, is an international system. For this reason, it's impossible for a single region to break free from capitalist relations of production on its own, at least for any significant period of time. 
The only way in which a workers' revolution can ultimately survive is if it spreads to other countries, since the resources needed to abolish scarcity are only available on an international level. But precisely because the world economy is more and more characterized by universal interdependence of nations and improved means of communication that place workers of different locations in contact with one another, the prospects for such a revolution are arguably better today than at any earlier time. The manifesto's final call for international solidarity is not just an abstract moral slogan, it is an essential precondition for the transformation of society. Capitalist crisis is inevitable, but socialist revolution is not. Capitalism may yet bring about the common ruin of the contending classes, mentioned right at the beginning of the Communist Manifesto. Only the active intervention of organized revolutionaries, the most advanced and resolute section of the working class movement, with a clear understanding of the line of march, the conditions and the ultimate general results of the proletarian movement, can bring about a different outcome. But there is much work to be done. The left in the US and most of the rest of the world is still weak. We need to rebuild what my friend Alan Sears has called infrastructures of resistance and dissent, organizations that don't disappear when movements go into a lull. And, when, and with the climate crisis looming, time is certainly not on our side. But if you accept Marx's overall analysis, that is the task that we need to take on today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.